This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In administrative law, a few big cases stand out. And for Cato's Will Yateman, the worst offenders when it comes to the size and scope of government ought to be called the infuriating five. So in administrative law, what cases made this list and why? We're going to go back in time a little bit here and talk about some infuriating cases, cases that have upset, perturbed, uh, infuriated Will Yateman on the subject of administrative law. So before we get to all of that, as a prelude, what kind of cases are administrative law cases? What separates them from other cases that might go before the U.S. Supreme Court? Administrative law, and it's also known as public law, is is the law um, of people challenging governmental action, if you will. Um, you know, we've got this vast and varied administrative state encompassing um, well more than 150-odd regulatory bureaucracies, um, many of which have the power to issue regulations with the force and effect of law. Uh, administrative law uh, uh, is the the sum of doctrines that control judicial review, uh, how courts oversee this administrative policymaking and the extent to which the regulated parties, the regulated entities, individuals can challenge state uh, administrative policymaking. Okay, so number five on your list, what is that case? Number five is a 1988 Supreme Court case, Webster versus Doe. Um, whereas the other cases on this list, um, I chose them due to their uh, long-term effect on, on law and policy. This case is more of a singular injustice, uh, one that reflects a gross perversion of core values in administrative law. Uh, so the petitioner here, John Doe, obviously that's not his real name, he used an alias, he was a typist at the CIA, and the agency discovered that he was a homosexual, and they fired him. Um, and their reasoning was that his sexual orientation is a national security threat. Um, and of course, this is ludicrous. Uh, Mr. Doe, the, you know, he, he sued. He sued over this. Um, and to do so, he invoked the 1946 Administrative Procedure Act. Uh, this statute, this law is known as the Constitution of the Administrative State. And one of its foundational lodestars, one of its primary purposes is to afford judicial review, is to afford access to the courts whenever an individual is harmed by unreasonable government action, by unreasonable agency action. And certainly that fits the bill for you know, the CIA firing someone because they considered his sexual orientation to be a national security threat. Um, notwithstanding the presumption of review under the Administrative Procedure Act, the Supreme Court made hash um, of the statute, and in particular in a, 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 a provision of the statute that, in essence, um, precludes review. Um, and in so doing, it was a, a fairly dark day for administrative law. Again, not for these long-lasting effects, but more so because this was an obvious instance when the values of the Administrative Procedure Act would have come into play. Um, and nonetheless, the court in 1998 closed the doors of the court um, 
to Mr. Doe. So it's worth noting here that this is infuriating uh, for Mr. Doe. It's infuriating that uh, the Administrative Procedures Act, as far as the Supreme Court was concerned, had nothing to say here. And yet the long-term effects of that case on administrative law or discrimination were essentially nil. Indeed. So it was uh, it's more of a, an isolated case in which uh, administrative law failed to rise to the occasion. Number four on your list. <laughs> Number four. This is one of the most famous cases of all time. This is Humphrey's executor versus the United States. This is a 1935 case in which the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of what are known as independent agencies. And here, uh, let me provide a little backstory. Um, so Congress creates two types of agencies. The first, executive branch agencies. So examples would include the Department of the Interior, the Energy Department, the EPA. The other type of agency that Congress creates um, are known as independent agencies. And these are commissions like the SEC, the Federal Trade Commission, um, uh, the FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So the primary difference between independent agencies and executive branch agencies is the extent to which the president is allowed to supervise them. Um, and that is to say that for executive branch agencies, the president can fire the agency head if the agency head doesn't do what the president says, if the, if the agency head doesn't uh, comport with the president's policy agenda. At independent agencies, the people who set policy are insulated from presidential oversight. They can disagree with the president and they can't get fired. Uh, they're, they're entitled to that job. The constitutionality of these independent agencies was uncertain until 1935. Um, they as an initial matter, I mean, that they sort of don't make a great deal of sense within our constitutional system. I mean, they're within the executive branch, but they're insulated from presidential management. That doesn't really make a great deal of sense within our separated of powers, within our constitutional framework. Um, well, in this 1935 case that's super important in the, in the annals of, of administrative law history, the Supreme Court upheld this structure as it pertains to the Federal Trade Commission, um, and the ramifications have been profound. Um, on the one hand, the actual, the practical effects, um, you'll find no one more concerned with executive authority run amok than yours truly. But there is one thing that concerns me even more, and that's unaccountable government power. And that's really what we have here with these independent agencies. So on the one hand, the, the, the continued existence of these agencies presents a, a pretty severe constitutional problem to the extent that they're the headless fourth branch of government, which is how they've been referred to in, in scholarship. Um, the other problem with this Humphreys executor is that the court's reasoning, I mean, I won't get into the legalese, but was unbelievably convoluted. Um, they, in essence, uh, came out to the conclusion that the FTC uh, doesn't execute the law, that, it, that it's not uh, uh, you know, a, a core executive function when, in fact, what they're doing you know, through regulation is very much the execution of the law. So uh, the court's muddled reasoning here created all sorts of doctrinal issues over the next uh, 
90 odd years. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, the, the practical reality of these independent agencies um, is objectionable. Um, and on the other hand, it, it created all sorts of legal problems with this muddled doctrine. Uh, I should add one thing here. Um, in the Roberts Court, especially since uh, uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch have come on board, um, there is some interest, perhaps uh, among a critical mass of current Supreme Court justices, to revisit Humphrey's executor and, and that convoluted logic. Was this case in the mid-1930s, was this typical? That is the idea of, you know, you see, we saw a, a very large growth in the size and scope of government in the 1930s. Um, is, was that case typical? Was it shocking? Was it part and parcel of the FDR agenda or was it an anomaly? That's a great question. Um, so these sorts of controversies rarely come before the court, uh, either then or now. That is to say, uh, it's rarely been the case that the president has fired someone who has a, a, a five-year term set in statute to um, their position, uh, which is to say that rare was the instance when the court could weigh in. Um, it was uh, only, I think it was 1922, I'm sorry, I don't know the exact date, but it was only a, a decade or so earlier um, that the court had come out basically to a 180 degree different conclusion with respect to the president's supervisory powers over the executive branch. This is a famous case, Myers. I think it was actually 1918. Um, but in essence, in that case, the court said, of course, it's inherent to executive power to manage subordinates. So, of course, the president has unfettered removal power over the uh, executive branch officials. Um, this gets to your question in that it was shocking then and now that the court would perform this about face. And, and indeed, when I speak about the court's convoluted reasoning and how it made no sense, that was a function of the court having to justify, in essence, an about face. I mean, it would put itself in a difficult position as a doctrinal matter. That is cases number five and four on Will Yateman's list of infuriating cases in administrative law. And we will get to the top three cases that infuriate Will Yateman in the field of administrative law on the next edition <laughs> of the Cato Daily Podcast. But in, in general here, what, what, when you're looking through these cases, I assume, you know, having read a lot of these cases and thinking about the nature of federal power the nature of power of administrative agencies, there, there was probably some hot competition to come up with just five. Oh, uh, very much so. Can, can you tease out for us in your top three, uh, what are these cases exceptional in their infuriating nature to you? I yes, um, undoubtedly so, and in particular number two, I think that will resonate. I mean, it's not; uh, it is uh, less difficult to uh, appreciate, if you will, than number one. But number two was the source of all sorts of trouble during the Trump administration, and I think uh, that's the reason people will appreciate it. It will be more readily identifiable because I will have very topical examples to point to. 
Will Yateman is a research fellow at the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Subscribe to and give a rating to the Cato Daily Podcast on your podcast platform of choice and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>